hey, hey. Welcome back to episode 25 of Michigan Brews. Um, I think I lost your audio, Brian. Oh, uh, really? Oh, there it's coming back. Yeah, All right. it's just quiet. Uh, so as you see, Jordan's not with us tonight. I think he's off playing dad again. We're not feeling quite up to it. Uh, so it's just going to be Brian and I. Um, we've got a cool guest tonight, though. Really happy to have uh, actually Dr. Lance Shaner Esquire. I want to make sure I got that right from Omega Yeast, uh, the the uh, founder and co-founder, co co-owner of Omega Yeast. So he's going to get on and uh, dig into some yeast facts with Brian as I sit here and get drunk. So uh, that'll be it. So welcome, Lance. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, I got the title right, right? Uh, yeah. I guess one thing about PhDs, though, I don't, I, most of them don't require that they're called doctor. Okay. <laughs> you technically could, but um, yeah, and the Esquire is a nice touch, too. <laughs> I was actually digging through old um, you know, articles and interviews, and I saw it referenced a few times, and uh, I just thought I'd go with it. So yeah. I didn't put it in the, the show description. I didn't know if I'd piss you off. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. And I've got enough letters at the end of my name. Yeah. So we usually start off the show talking about what we're drinking. Sometimes it's homebrew. Uh, usually we have a brewery on that'll tell us, or we're drinking some of their stuff. But since you kind of supply all breweries or a wide variety of breweries, we didn't get anything specific to you. But well, what, are you, what are you drinking tonight? What are you having like? Yeah, uh, Revolution Riot. Nice. Uh, a Bohemian Keller Pills. Some unfiltered oh. pills. It's very good. Oh, is it good. Uh, is it with your yeast? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think they've gotten live, but they were they were picking up yeast and dropped off a case today. Oh, nice. Um, which nice. is one of the perks of the business. Yeah. No <laughs> <laughs> Was it all that, uh, the Keller beer, the kind of, what what you call it? A Keller pills? Keller pills. Um, I don't know. I was just handed a four pack from what they brought. Um, I, the, the, whoever got it knows my, uh, predilections. Nice. Yeah. It's, I have uh, much revolution up here. No, we, uh, very little. I think. Um, also just like their IPA, like, uh, mixed yeah. packs and stuff like that. Yep. The, uh, anti-hero and stuff. Yeah, for I mean, as much as they, I think they do try to keep it, you know, pretty Chicago centric. Um, but they make a ton of beer, so it's actually surprising they don't have a larger footprint. But they they hit it pretty hard around Chicago. Yeah, yeah I think it could started coming up last year, but yeah, it's just like the anti hero and the hero and the, the some of that. It's not mm -hmm. too much. But um, what are you drinking, Brian? Uh, so I'm just finishing off a beer and probably going to crack another one in a minute here. Um, so uh, on Black Friday, a new brewery in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, just launched their first beer, uh, Black Calder Brewing. Uh, it's the first black-owned, fully black-owned uh, brewery in Michigan, I believe. Um, yep. They made a black IPA with Mosaic and Idaho 7. So that's what's left of this guy here. Uh, but it's delicious. I mean, it's like... You don't see black IPAs that often, right? Anywhere, or at least not these days. I guess. I guess there, you know, there's a time period where they were all over the place, probably. But uh, I don't know. It's as good as any I've ever had, if not, you know, the top of the top. I, I love Mosaic and everything, anyway. So nice. Uh, but yeah. Actually, it's it's funny. It's the only beer I have kegged or tapped in my new kegerator is a black IPA. It's a black IPA, and I'm not <laughs> even drinking it tonight. So. Uh, I'm I'm trying to I'm pounding some seltzer, dude. Lance with uh, <laughs> with proper seltzer, I think you're going to change my game. 
Uh, I've, I've got one going in the basement right now. And I, I was going to talk about this later, but what the hell. Um, <laughs> I, I, I picked up Lutra and Proper Seltzer last week uh, as soon as our homebrew store got it uh, and, and started kicking off a seltzer. And I'll say it, it's not this, but it's the cleanest, uh, clearest, you know, uh, nicest seltzer I've ever I've ever made, or even a homebrew seltzer. It's like hmm. usually I hate my shit because. Was that? But oh, that that looked really clear. Like like in terms of color and stuff too. Oh, this this one this is Oxide's uh, cucumber. Oh, pie. okay. <laughs> yeah, no, no the 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 one I made with uh, with Omega's Lutra and Proper Starter probably crash it um later this week my basement's a little cooler so it's it's fermenting slower um mm -hmm. it's about seven days in it's gone from uh 1080 to 1028 1070 1070 to 1030 1028 and my intent was to brew it a little high and then cut it into two batches so, okay no, there's and actually, if we want to jump right into uh, science, there's a, a one one of the interesting things we did um, is fermented a high gravity seltzer like that, and then um, cut it. Well, we sent it off for analysis for diffusals and esters and all that. Uh, one of the interesting things when you compare, say, a ten plato starting seltzer to a twenty plato, you don't get two times the amount of um, esters diffusals in the twenty. Uh, Play-Doh. Uh, so effectively, then when you cut it back to say like what would have been a ten Play-Doh start, it tastes cleaner. Yeah. Um, so because you're not doubling all of those other things, so it's actually a really really good technique for uh, getting a very clean seltzer base is to brew it at higher gravity and cut it back. So I, I um, and I, I miscalculated the rice syrup solids that I grabbed. I was doing a mix of dextra and rice syrup solids. And so when I got home, I, I thought I had four and I'd only grabbed two. And uh, so I hit 1070. Um, and I told my wife I was a little bummed because I did want to brew that higher gravity and then, uh, you know, split it into like two kegs that I could flavor differently, uh, cut it with some water. And so anyway, I, I didn't grab enough sugar. I didn't get there. I got 1070. But here I am a week later. It's 1028 right now. I pulled a sample today, and we both drank the sample, and it's like this just tastes like really clean, slightly sweet water. Uh, even at that point, it's probably, what, around the 5% ABV rate mark. Um, oh, yeah. You know, and, and she she compared it to just a really delicate wine. Um uh, sweet wine or whatever, and I was just, I, I even texted Brian, I'm like, dude, this shit, I could, I could crash it right now and carbonate it and not even flavor it. It tastes just clean, slightly sweet, and really refreshing, so. Yeah, to me, the, the unflavored ones always taste like sake, just like a, yeah. a very sake-like, which I think makes some sense because sake is essentially just, um, rice is relatively flavorless so it ends up mostly being just dextrin or dextrose when it's broken down so it's just that's that's what it tastes like yeah it always tastes like sake to me and it's just very easily uh covered up with whatever flavoring you want to yeah. do if you don't happen to like sake yeah no but anyway uh yeah so now normally brian and i are really good about going off topic um not so much about <laughs> jumping way the hell up i had to when I was going to start talking about seltzers, so sorry about that. So, <laughs> like seltzers are like it's like it's like the, the, it's still like I did. I thought it was going to be like a 
a passing sort of like you know thing like the black ipas like oh it's gonna stick around for a little bit and then like never really got into them and then we had our like seltzer episode not too long ago and uh and they're obviously still on the shelves and stuff and lance you guys are, are focusing a lot on doing stuff for seltzers and with you know with the proper seltzer thing and uh i'm gonna make my own first seltzer here soon because i they're just it's they're not filling i think that's my thing with like drinking a lot sometimes it's just like man i'm like full like i could still go to you know, for, for another couple of beers or something like that. But. Yeah. And I mean, and they're just like a blank canvas too. I mean, you yeah. can kind of get creative with your flavoring. Um, so it's just some place where you can be creative. Yeah. I mean, and you know, we did that seltzer episode and we lined up, what was it like eight different seltzers and, <laughs> and, and normally like when we do a style show, so we do a few different kinds of shows. We we'll do a, a show where we'll talk about a style. We'll do a show with a brewer or guests like you. And then sometimes we'll do shows with, um, you know, uh, home brewers or clubs or things like that. And so we had done Brian and I, I don't think Jordan was there, but Brian and I did the seltzer episode lined up like eight cans of seltzer. And before you know it, it the night had gone horribly wrong because um, <laughs> they were just going down so easy five percent uh, at a time <laughs> um but yeah no I'm, I'm super excited about proper seltzer and and uh and and the luter combination i really i really dug it it, it fermented clean the first previous batches of seltzer i've done with either champagne yeast or or just regular yeast that i tried to kind of treat with my own you know dap or whatever um they, they always had a a whiny characteristic mm -hmm. or uh um you know just kind of this off flavor that i didn't like and uh and this one's super super clean so yeah and those tend to wine yeast are always very sulfury too especially if you don't have that nutrient mix right yeah so is there any oh go ahead oh i was just gonna jump back into omega <laughs> but <laughs> I, I was gonna ask if there was any other like yeast that omega had that you would recommend besides you know lutra for seltzers yeah i mean seeing success with um, the, the one fight that we haven't is, uh, the hot head. It do doesn't seem to, uh, work that well in a seltzer environment. Um, but we did, I mean, the, the nutrients tailored really for it to be useful for pretty much any brewing yeast. Okay. Um, so with, with any brewing yeast, you should be able to ferment it to completion. That's got everything that any ale yeast would need. Um, but we do have a lot of, I mean, the quikes, especially if you push them, um, warmer, they'll chug through it pretty quick. Cool. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. So we should go back to the beginning, um, you know, give us your, your background and how you got into, uh, why are you a, a yeast producer? <laughs> um, yeah, I guess we could step back to college. So, uh, <laughs> where most beer drinking adventures start. Um, so I uh, went to the University of Illinois in Champaign and um, when I was like a sophomore, I think, I uh, joined, they have a homebrew club there called Buzz, the Boneyard Union of Zymerological Zealots. Um, and it's an actual university sanctioned club, as in they have a booth on quad day out on the quad. Um, and uh, they're very, very active club. Uh, so I, I don't remember if I, I think I might've started home. 
I don't know, this is so long ago now and so many beers ago. Um, <laughs> I don't remember if I had started to brew first and then found them or found them and started to brew. Um, but, uh, you know, attended those meetings regularly and of course learned that you could buy everything you needed to brew with before you were 21. Um, cause you're, you know, it's just grain and, <laughs> and yeast and you know, nothing alcoholic about it. So it was kind of a backdoor to, you know, getting beer too. Um, but uh, there were some top, I mean, like world-class brewers in that club. So it really opened my eyes to what you could do at home. You know, it's like, you don't really need fancy things to make great beer at home. So it was very inspirational as well. Um, so kept brewing. And then there's also somebody in the food science department who had a huge collection of uh, yeast too. So you could get whatever strain you wanted. He'd give you like a little five millimeter starter that you could step up at home. Uh, so it also gave me my first kind of experience in handling yeast. Um, so from there, uh, ended up moving to Texas, Houston, Texas, to go to graduate school. Um, and yeah, that was even a beer-related uh, venture because uh, um, I always tagged along with the graduate students when they'd have the department would have uh, speakers from other universities come in and talk about their research. And um, afterwards, the graduate students would take the speaker to the, this local beer and bread shop and, you know, we'd eat some good cheese and bread and have beer. And I was tagged along with them just, you know, mostly to get uh, free beer and cheese. Um, and uh, it happened to be around the time I was uh, applying to graduate schools and somebody from the University of Texas in Houston had spoken there, so I was talking to her, and she's like, "Oh, you should, uh, you should apply at our school. It's, you know, it's a good school." And I'm like, "Oh, I hadn't thought about that. I'd been looking at others, but I hadn't considered them." Um, so I applied and flew down there, and really liked it. I liked the people I met, and she was working on something really cool. She was actually working on um, Bacillus anthracis, so the bacteria that you know causes anthrax. Um, so I'm like, "Well, that's pretty cool. I'd, I'd like to work with anthrax." Um, so, uh, went, moved to Houston and, uh, just the, the funny way things work, the first, uh, you do rotations in your first year in graduate school there. So you pick a lab and you're there for like, uh, two or three months. And then you go to another lab and, and do some, uh, projects there and then another one. And then you pick the one, um, that you like the most, uh, had a good rapport with the professor to do your, uh, full thesis. Um, so the anthrax lab happened to be the most popular one. So there's like three students out of the incoming class of nine that were all wanting to do their first rotation there. I'm like, I kind of want to go to the same place where everybody else is going. So um, I ended up choosing to rotate through uh, Kevin Morano's lab. He's a, a fairly new professor there, but he was working on yeast. Um, and uh, on Saccharomyces cerevisiae, not in the brewing context, it was more in the human health uh, context. Um, but, it, you know, I'm like, oh, I like, I like to brew. I like to work with yeast. It'd be fun to actually get more hands on with it. So I joined his lab and just fell in love with yeast. I mean, just, uh, working with yeast is so, I mean, they smell good. They smell much better than, a you know, an anthrax <laughs> lab. <laughs> sure. Um, so, and they're, they're, you can just do pretty much anything with them genetically. They're just so genetically malleable. Um, I mean, you can do neat things like take a human version of a gene and replace the yeast version, and it'll serve that same function in the yeast cell that it does in the uh, human cell. So you can study human conditions using yeast as your model system. Wow. Um, 
so that that was the focus of the lab. We we studied the stress response, um, uh, which has a ton of parallels between uh, human cells and yeast cells. Uh, but along the way, I got to store my brewing yeast strains and grow them up in whatever quantities I needed to brew. Um, so I was always brewing through graduate school, which makes you popular in graduate school too, um, <laughs> to have kegs available all the time. Um, so yeah, I ended up liking it a lot, did a rotation through one other lab, which wasn't as interesting, and then went back to the yeast lab to do my uh, thesis work. So it was just, I mean, I went to Texas thinking I was going to be um, studying anthrax and ended up studying yeast which had a, <laughs> obviously a huge impact on what I ultimately did. So it was just, I don't know. It's just funny to think about it in retrospect and, you know, how, how you ended up where you did. And just these funny little turns. I mean, it, life might have been different had not everybody wanted to go through that anthrax lab at the same time. Um, so, yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, so from there, once I graduated from there, um, actually, had gotten kind of disillusioned with doing bench work, uh, so I took a detour to law school at that time um, at the University of Houston. And uh, the the whole point or the whole goal going into it was that I was going to do patent law when I got out, because um, you have to, in order to practice patent law, you have to have a technical degree and the law degree. So basically, you act as the the go between between the inventor and the patent office. So you have to understand the technology and the law. Um, so that was the the goal going into it, that I didn't end up doing that. Um, so uh, when I graduated, I got a job at um, Marshall Gerstein and Boren in the Sears Tower uh, in Chicago and uh, moved up back up, back up to Illinois and, and uh, became a patent attorney and did that for about four years. Um, and it was during that fourth year where I had a very chance conversation. Again, another one of those, you know, right moment, right time, um, where I was talking to Andy Smith, who was one of the founders of 1090 Brewing in Glenview. And he was just, you know, they were still in the planning phases and he was just talking about where he's going to be getting his yeast. And so we were just talking about yeast and just, uh, just occurred to me during that conversation that, there's nobody else doing, there's no yeast labs in the Midwest. Nobody's doing this. And you know, it's a perishable product. It has to be shipped quick and cold and all this. So we, you know, in my head, I'm like, we can get off the ground by just uh, focusing on Chicago. There's a lot of breweries in Chicago. It's growing as it is. Um, and so I had, yeah, just, it seemed like it could work, which, you know, in retrospect, it seems ridiculous too. Um, it's like, you know, I don't know. I've never grown yeast on an industrial scale. So I was probably like naive to think I could do it. Um, but, you know, I, I talked to one of my um, colleagues at the firm, Mark, who became my business partner, um, just about the idea and said, you know, I think this could work. This is what I think the inputs will cost. And again, not really knowing <laughs> uh, all that would be involved. Um, but he was intrigued enough by the idea. And I, I was really just talking to him to kind of like just talk it out. Uh, but then a few days later, he's like, do you want a business partner? And said, sure, you know, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. So <laughs> you know, let's, uh, let's give it a try. So um, this would have been like November of 2012, December 2012, when that conversation happened. By uh, March of 2013, we had space rented um, in, in a costume shop at, at, in Chicago where they had basically walled off a section, installed some 
plumbing in it and we had our 1300 square foot lab to start out um and basically just uh, uh moonlighted i mean we'd uh go in in the evening and kind of do everything we needed to do uh get home at 1 a.m wake up take the train back to work to be a lawyer for you know eight to ten hours and then go back <laughs> to the lab and do that till 1 a.m and it was uh it was exhausting um and got to the point where we actually started to get enough business where it's like you know this isn't going to work if one of us doesn't just take the leap and do it full time so um i think august of that first year is when i just uh informed the firm that i was uh going to leave and do this full time um and felt felt pretty good about it. I still obviously still feel <laughs> pretty good <laughs> about it um but it was yeah i mean it was tough that first uh i think for the first two years i um literally was at the lab every day um for two straight years uh, it's i mean it's in a lot of ways it's like uh raising farm animals i mean they have to be fed daily they have to be you know cared for so you really can't take a day off i mean you have to be checking on them to make sure you know things aren't blowing up and mm-hmm. it was uh it was rough until i you know we could hire start to hire more people and get people that you trusted to do what you would do in the same situation i mean there's one thanksgiving where i had got food poisoning or something and um had to go into lab the next day to do things because there's nobody else to do it and uh yeah i could barely walk um that was just from fatigue but you know so thankfully those days are uh long past us and we have a lot of people that we trust and and awesome. uh, to get get things done but it was it was a struggle for those first couple of years but um yeah that that's that's that was the beginnings it's nice to know that you're kind of the same um i've talked to a lot of brewers that have started their breweries because they were talking to a buddy having a couple of beers and said this sounds like a crazy idea let's do it and and they've made successful breweries and then here you did it with a yeast uh you know manufacturing company as as a whim so that's kind of cool yeah yeah i mean it it probably is the same story it's just the uh the supply side of things and uh the analogy that my business partner i don't know if he made it up but probably relevant in other situations too but um basically uh, during the gold rush would you have rather been the uh the miner who had a you know a chance to you know do really really well or would you rather be the person selling the pickaxes <laughs> yeah. um did anybody watch deadwood <laughs> <laughs> did they talk about that in deadwood that's uh, pretty much what the the central one of the, the the many plot lines of deadwood is is the main characters are the hardware store salesman that moved into gold Saul. yeah yeah so <laughs> yeah well he, he put that into different well yeah maybe he did that'd be funny if he because i watched that series uh, i should have known he was ripping off <laughs> but you're right like yeah why why go out and bust your ass to do the work sell all the tools to do the work um but and and this is going back to so so you you were nice enough to come to our homebrew club meeting last month and and do a demonstration uh at the homebrew level for yeast and one of the things you said kind of ties into this is, uh, and I'm, I'm losing it. Um, oh, you're one of the largest beer producers for in in your area, right? But you're not actually you don't sell any beer. You just you guys brew 
crazy ton of beer to make your yeast and grow your yeast, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we when so in our old system, we use dry malt extract, and um, when we uh, so we were basically yeah we were beginner home brewers uh, just using extract um, to grow our yeast, and when we moved into the the new building, we actually got a brew house, so we have a, a four vessel, thirty barrel brew house. So we and we use malt. We have a silo of malt out back. Um, so we are, yeah, basically we're brewers that dump all their beer down the drain um, <laughs> and keep the yeast. So yeah, we yield like a 4% alcohol beer that's obviously heavily oxidized because we're you know, feeding uh, air to it all the time to encourage yeast growth. Um, but yeah, we, I mean, we brew 30 to 60 barrels of beer a day. Yeah. Where, where, so going back to like your, your beginnings and stuff like that, and maybe this, I, I have no idea how like yeast labs start. Where do you start to like acquire like your strains from and stuff like that? Like you obviously just don't start and magically like have yeast on hand. Like how does that work? Um, well, I mean, it's, again, since I started brewing in college, I mean, basically when I moved to Texas, I they had all those strains in their collection there. So I uh, got streaks out of all those and took them with me to Texas. Cool. Okay. And, you know, and, kept, and bought yeast over the years that I then stored away. Just, I mean, like I hear you have uh, your own yeast lab. I mean, the thing about these th these strains is that they're not, I mean, before, you know, White Labs was selling Chico, uh, Siebel had it in their collection and um, um, Sierra Nevada was brewing with it. So the, the strain existed and there's nothing uh, protecting the strain <laughs> itself. There is uh, intellectual property that protects what you call it. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I can't sell a strain under somebody else's trade name for the strain, but the strain itself is not protected. Um, so that's, uh, so part of it with us is making sure we have all the strains that brewers are used to using and want to use, um, but also finding and making other strains. So, so the whole gamut, uh, full service, you know, if you, uh, like using Chico, we can provide Chico. Um, but if you're looking for new things, we're again, trying to, you know, like find like kvikes. I mean, we've been, we were pushing those before anybody knew what they were. We got those first in 2015. Um, and then hybrids we were the, you know, the first to have hybrid yeasts out there that we created ourselves. Um, so yeah, we're, I guess we'd like to say we're full service. Is that, so for the intellectual property that you, what you just talked about is how does that apply to something like uh, like your is it uh, Chavaru strain like I mean that you got from a specific uh, Lithuanian source right yeah and 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 you that's a proprietary yeast for you you have a, an agreement with them or however so does can anybody come along though and just regrow that yeast and sell it under a different name. They could, and there are uh, other places that are doing that. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, the Yovaru one is actually kind of. Yovaru, uh, sorry. Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I, I, I called it Jovaru for the longest time until they <laughs> told me that uh, the, the J was pronounced like a Y. Um, it's a yeah. I mean, it's a it's, it's a different one because most again, yeah, most of these you, know, you can get something out of a bottle, you can sell it under whatever name you want, as long as it's, you know, not like a brewery name, something like that. Um, with Yovaru, we, I mean, they sent us the strain and we got to use their name. So, you know, Yovaru is the name of that brewery. Um, so we filed a trademark application on behalf of Aldona and um, sell it under her, her trade name. She owns that trademark. We just filed it for her. 
Um, so nobody else could sell something they call Yovaru. Um, but yes, there's nothing um, we can do to stop anybody from doing it. We do also, though, have that arrangement with her where she gets a percentage of our sales. Um, so you know, other people that are selling it aren't don't have that arrangement, uh, right? And and she always was very protective of the strain. I mean, she uh, doesn't want other people to have that, you know, to be selling it without her getting something for it, but there's nothing she can do about it. There's nothing we can do about it. Um, other than to publicize that we do have this arrangement with her, you know, like we, we got this strain from her with this agreement for her to get, you know, royalties. So, um, but it's, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. That, that's the, the most protection we can get for something like that. Well, that's interesting. I mean, because I thought the same thing that Brian had is, you know, how do you, where do you come up with these strains or how do you get these strains? And um, one of the things that I read from you, I think back when you were doing research on the Brett strains was you were like, the best way to get them is to do dregs. Uh, or the, the best way to get clean Brett strains was to do dregs off European. Oh, sours. yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Lambics are loaded right. with lab Brett. And so I just, I, I wondered, like, you know, is that a thing out there? Are the, are the yeast companies like yourselves and, and the other ones out there, are they just getting drags and, and samples from other places? Like, how did you come up with all these bikes? And, uh, you know, I, I knew that I found the story on on the, the uh, I'm going to screw it up again. Yavaru? Yovaru. <laughs> Yovaru. Mm -hmm. But um, how did that turn into or, or how did you start getting involved in all of the bike strains? Um. Uh, so we, I mean, we found out about it probably the way a lot of people did, which is reading Lars blog. Um, so, uh, I, yeah, I, I mean, I read that and reached out directly to Lars. I'm like, I got to try these things. They sound incredible. Um, and he didn't actually get back to us <laughs> right, right out of the gate. I don't know. didn't know who we were or whatever, maybe getting inundated. But so we, uh, but he had mentioned in his writings that he was, um, you know, submitting them to the National Yeast NCYC National Collection of Yeast Cultures in the UK. Um, so we just reached out to the NCYC. We're like, can we, you know, and you can order yeast from them, and um, they'll do a, a licensing deal as well. Um, so that that's how we got Hothead, just based on you know what they had and what Lars's Lars's description of it was. And I'm like, this sounds like a neat one to start with. So we. Um, sent off for that. Uh, that's the, the Stronda Kvaik that we call, we called Hothead. Um, just because again, 2015, nobody knew what Kvaik was. So if we'd come out and sold something as Stronda Kvaik, uh, we wouldn't have sold any of it because nobody knew what it was. Uh, now that changed uh, to where we now release things with the, the Kvaik name because people know what Kvaik is and people search for that sort of thing. But at the time, that wasn't the case. Um, so that's where Hothead came from. Um, at some point after that, you know, we had reached out to Lars again, or he finally answered or something. And, uh, so we've got everything we've gotten subsequently has come directly from Lars. Cool. Um, the other, I don't know, we, I think the three other, uh, the Hornendal, Voss, Espa, um, those all came directly from Lars and a couple others that we brewed with and didn't seem like they necessarily added anything beyond what we had. So those are just sitting in the freezer. And then the other, mm -hmm. like uh, and, uh, so Lutra came 
out of the Hornendal blend. So uh, when we really dove in and picked apart the Hornendal culture, we found nine distinct strains in it, at least nine distinct strains, um, and then brewed with those individually to find uh, Lutra out of that blend. So it is a single strain component of Hornendal. Is that more than what you sell right now? Like a, like all you know, nine strains are in like that that hot head packet of yours or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So we we um yeah, so we we have the the culture stored away in the original blend that we got from Lars. And every time we grow that, we take it streak it out of the freezer and a good microbiologist would start your culture with a single colony off of a plate, but obviously if you do that, you don't have a blend. Uh, so for Hornendal, we do do it a little differently, and we'll take a you know wide swath off that plate to make sure we're getting a sampling of of everything that we started with, just to maintain to the greatest degree we can the the blend as it was when we got it. Hard is to grow up like a big, you know, thirty barrel batch, you know, or something of 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 that yeast blend off of a, a streak. So starting with a plate, uh, we can have uh, a 30 barrel batch grown up and harvested in six days. Wow. The, the magic of uh, exponential growth. But you're, it, you're like constantly oxygenating that medium, yep. right? And it's the perfect environment. Yeah. And uh, I'm just to start small and just gradually, you know, feed it, just give it more and more food and uh, yeah, and just Keep going. You, you step it up basically just like, you know, small amounts of wort and then add it to like a larger amount of wort or, or how's that work? Um, yeah, no, that's uh, uh, essentially it. You start, okay. yeah, start yeah, with yeah. Like <laughs> 200 milliliters and swizzle some yeast right out of the plate in there and grow that up, step that up into, you know, one or two liters and, and just keep that going. Cool. You uh, you mentioned too, and this is something that I, I'm I'm kind of interested in. Um, I, I think that at one point in time you had done research, or you have actually produced yeast that you've created via like uh, like yeast mating, like you've you've um, basically made a different yeast to to find. Uh, one of them was like a saison yeast, right? Yeah. So our saison science monster is a, a hybrid. What, okay. Yeah, of uh, the Dupont saison strain and the uh, French saison. So it's 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 not a blend of yeast in there. It's a it's a I guess more or less proprietary one that you've created. By yeah, by and and, huh. and and tying this to the earlier conversation of you know of proprietary and intellectual property, yeah. we literally can patent those things. Um, because we created them. There, there is a uh, the hand of man was involved in creating this thing. It would not exist, but for our intervention. Um, so we can, you can patent living things like that, that you created. So um, in that case, ABC East Lab released a new strain and you somehow got it and tested it and found out it was genetically your strain, then you can fight that. Yep. Um, and, and in that case, it doesn't matter what they call it. it does, they can call it, uh, you know, yeah, Saison 5. Um, and it does, they don't have to call it Saison Science Monster. We could still go after them. That's interesting. Oh, that's cool. I didn't actually know that. I thought it was like a blend of yeasts. So, so for Sundew and Bonanza, then that's the same because. Yeah, I mean, so yeah. Well, to add, there's always wrinkles. Um, <laughs> so those are. Can you explain what those are? Yeah. Yes. Uh, so 
Sundu and Bonanza are essentially, so Bonanza, for example, is our uh, Hefeweizen strain, O21, um, that we just made it non-phenolic. So uh, the reason um, yeast in their natural state are phenolic is they have a, a gene called FDC1, which stands for ferulic decarboxylase, um, which takes ferulic acid that's naturally present in wort, and they convert that into 4-vinyl glycol. And 4-vinyl glycol is what we smell, uh, perceive as clove. Um, so any American yeast, lager yeast, English yeast, they've all got a mutation in that gene um, that basically makes it stop. It doesn't express, so it'll, uh, um, it has a premature stop code on, that's what it, if you're a biologist, um, that uh, prevents it from making the whole um, protein. And um, so the result is it's non-phenolic. Um, so we basically induced that same change in Hefeweizen um, and our Belgian A strain. Uh, so that it's got the same, now it has the same mutation that any American ale yeast or English ale yeast has. Um, but we used, you know, CRISPR, modern genetic editing tool to make that very, very precise change. So the neat thing, at least what I find neat, but I'm a nerd, um, is that, you know, you can take Hefeweizen and Bonanza, sequence their entire genome. They are the same throughout the entire genome, except for that one base change. And it profoundly affects the way that yeast tastes, right? Oh, the, yeah. the Hefeweizen strain, uh, traditional one, you get the banana and the clove. Uh, for the Bonanza, it's just banana because it no longer has the ability to make clove because of that single base pair change um it's just i mean i think shows how powerful uh you know single gene changes can be um so so since we induce that change in theory we could patent it um but there's all sorts of other <laughs> this is where the the crossover with my past life actually comes in handy um it's just there, there are other bars to patentability in that case. It's uh, uh, something has to be non-obvious. And there's basically been, you know, publications out there where, I mean, everybody knows that that's why strains are not, that are non-phenolic are non-phenolic. So um, the patent office, if you tried to patent something like that, would say, well, it, it's obvious. It's known to one of ordinary skill in the art that you could make that change and have a non-phenolic version of the strain. So we're not going to give you a patent for that. Um, so while it's technically patentable, it's uh, we'd be very unlikely to actually have a patent issued on a strain like that. Wow. So since you're using CRISPR, you are, and I'm, I'm, I may be overstepping because I'm not a scientist, you are genetically modifying the yeast then, right? Uh, yeah. So um, do, you, do you think that the, the GMO regulations and... Um, so no, I mean, we submitted, uh, what's called a grass notice with the FDA, um, which means generally recognized as safe, um, where we basically spell out what we did, how we did it and say we, it's safe because it's a change that already exists in, um, you know, other brewing yeast. Uh, I mean, you can actually use that same, it's the same route that say Lalamond used for, uh, Sour Vissier, and that's actually a transgenic. So what we did, um, would be con considered cisgenic. So we used uh, a change that's already present in that species and other versions of that same species and applied it to this particular strain. 
Um, whereas something like Cerevisiae has a gene that does not exist in any form in Cerevisiae. And they took it from another uh, fungus that uh, the LDH gene, the lactate dehydrogenase, um, that makes lactic acid. And, um, and they moved that into uh, Cerevisiae. So that is a transgenic organism, GMO, I mean, GMO by what we would normally consider GMO. Um, but they're they're filing through the same they're uh, through the same pathway. Just basically submit a notice to the FDA um, that says we think it's safe because um, you know like this gene is already present in other food products and and things mm -hmm. like that. So, um, I mean, I in my view, it's uh, unnecessary for us to even do that. Um, but you know, we we talked to the FDA and said this is what we want to do. Do we need to file a grass notice? And they said yes, you should file a grass notice. Like okay, so so we do. But I mean, it is. I mean, in our view, this is like this is GMO light. I mean, it's um, we are just uh, at this stage just in, in inducing changes that are already present in other brewing yeast. It's not transgenic. I mean, I have nothing against transgenic, and we'd like to get into those uh, sorts of things as well. But this is. As, as light as it comes with GMO. All right. All right. Yeah, that's, um, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. Like that's, that's really cool. That's really crazy. Do you have, well, you probably can't say, but is, is this something that like you guys are like pretty passionate about right now is like the, the yeast, you know, breeding and gene modification and stuff like that. Like I, I've been telling people that I, I feel like there's only so many like yeasts that you know are going to produce so many flavors and we've discovered a lot of them and they've been around for a while and so what's next is maybe like blends and modifications and stuff like that and i, I feel like you know, you know kvike obviously uh you know was i don't want to say discovered but came into popularity quite a bit you know in the last couple of years and mm -hmm. uh, that that's it's redefined a lot of different ways of you know brewing and stuff like that and uh, yeah, I don't know what, I mean, is that like a yeah. focus for you or? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, we, we look, they're used for different things. So I, I, I view, um, well, I mean, hybridization, you can actually use kind of like you'd use, uh, I mean, you could in theory actually create Bonanza or um, Sundew by crossing uh, that strain with a non-phenolic parent a, a, a non-phenolic strain and then it would still be phenolic because it would have one copy of the phenolic uh, gene the, the intact gene and one that's not so then you'd have to do a long series of back crosses uh, but ultimately you could in theory uh, cross something enough times to get where you know like 99% of its genetic material comes from the strain you want but it still retains that non-phenolic version um, so you could accomplish these things by breeding too. It just takes, you know, months and months and months. Um, and, and, you know, and, and you're, you know, you're ultimately going to end up with the trait you want, but you're going to have some other parts of the genome sprinkled in there too. So it's not going to be the single change, whereas you can use a modern genetic tool to, to, you know, it's literally that one single change. It's very, very targeted. Um, but the other thing I think you can do with, hybrids is uh, yield things unexpected because you're putting, you're mashing the genomes of two yeast, you know, two different yeast together. And you might think you might end up with something with these characteristics, but it's really kind of unpredictable. Um, so to me, that's where there's a lot of potential for 
just new things. You have new new performance, new flavor combinations. Just because you're, it's so complex. You're at you're mashing together so many different gene types um, that you just don't know what you're going to get. Um, so there's a lot of yeah, a lot of potential in that. You guys, you guys have that whole R and D department, like basically that that sort of like does that sort of stuff, like on you know. That's, that's like their whole job is to. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so it was about a, oh, almost two years ago now, we hired uh, Laura Burns, who was the um, head brewer at uh, um, Great Central in Chicago, big um, contract brewer, and she has, like me, a, a PhD in microbiology, studying yeast. So um, that that's her job is to yeah to do. She's the one that uh, formulated pro, uh, uh, proper seltzer. Um, and, and, and created uh, Bonanza and Sundew, um, working on lots of hybrids. We've got, uh, yeah, it's her full-time job is playing in the lab and, uh, creating strains for us to brew with and sample and, and, and all that. So yeah, we're, we're definitely putting resources into that. That's really good. So to, to take this back to the, the homebrewer scale, some of the things, and, and, and they may be old wives tales, I, I guess that's what I'm trying to clarify is, you know, when, when I started learning how to brew and uh, I'd buy my package of yeast and, and pitch and, uh, you know, I, I heard some people were washing yeast or reusing yeast. And I've also heard people say, well, they get mutated. And if you, you know, brew two or three batches with them, you're going to get weird flavors um, but it, you're, you're, you're talking about taking a strain and adding to add a flavor to modify a flavor, taking months and months and hundreds of different variations or, or um, you know, back crosses on that, that strain to, to get a, 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 a mutation or a modification in place. Do you think from the homebrewer scale that we really are getting mutations in a five gallon and two to three, five gallon batches? Um, Yes, but I also don't know. Uh, so yeah, I mean, every time a yeast cell reproduces, it's going to uh, mute. I don't know. I, I should know this, but one in every whatever million base pairs, it messes up when it's copying. Um, but a lot of those changes it makes are what are called silent mutations. So it doesn't actually change the what the protein ultimately looks like, or it happens in a region that's not even coding for a protein. So, you know, most of these changes it makes are not noticed. Um, but also just imagine if uh, your non-phenolic yeast, uh, one of them in your culture actually mutated to being back to being phenolic, like that, that could theoretically happen where that switch happens back the other way. It's not going to, it's going to happen in one cell at most in this culture of millions and millions of yeast. Um, that would never be noticed. You can brew with that for 10 you know, generations and you're not going to notice phenolic because it's just, it's, not enough of it in that population to ever be noticed. Right. Um, I think the what I think more likely the more likely explanation for off flavors is that uh, you know you introduced something else that uh, in two or three generations in that just eventually got out of hand. I don't think it's it's not a mutation that's inducing. I mean, it can be an un unhealthy culture that is you have autolysis problems going on or something, and like that's the source of some off flavors, but. It's more likely um, contamination, uh, something like that, but not not mutation. Yeah, I can imagine just us homebrewers with you know lack of equipment or or improper uh, cleaning and, and contamination. I get that, 
but yeah, it was always like, oh, it's going to mutate. And I was just like, how, how is that possible? Yeah, I mean, so, so the answer is yes, is it, it is mutating, but not, in, you know, it's unlikely to be in a way that's going to be noticed. Um, and, and personally, I'm, I'm a big fan of buying a brand new pack of whatever yeast, Omega or whoever. Um, I'm, I'm not into washing and cleaning and storing, and that's a pain in the ass. And for you two that like to do that, more power to you. Um. Yeah, I mean, you know, some people, yeah, enjoy that aspect of it. I mean, being a home scientist is cool. Um, right. So, yeah, um, it's it's doable if you have the the you know right tools and know how for sure. So you mentioned earlier in Buzz that you actually had access to uh, a yeast farm or a yeast bank. Was that mm -hmm. done? Was that put on by the college or just a guy in your club? It was a, a guy in the food science department. I think he was a, I don't know if he was faculty of some sort or a graduate student or something in the food science department who would kind of do the, the. I mean, it was just, you know, stored away in a minus 80 freezer. And uh, you'd say, then they had a list of what they had somewhere. So you'd be like, hey, can I get a starter or whatever? And he'd swizzle it out into a, a test tube and, and hand you that test tube. And so, it was so you had access to the equipment that home brewers typically would not. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, yes. The minus eighty freezer uh, is yeah. definitely not something that most people would have at home. I rock my uh, my chest freezer out with a, a insulated cooler and hope for the best. Yeah, I've had luck uh, with a couple year old yeast, but oh sure, yeah. I mean, I, I think what what the minus eighty gives you is basically if you don't lose power, that's in in perpetuity. As long as humans could test, those yeasts are going to be alive. That's crazy. Um, and, you know, in your home fridge, if you have one that's, you know, um, doesn't have a defrost cycle, so it's not constantly, you know, uh, thawing and refreezing, I'm sure those would be intact for decades as well. It's just minus 80. It's just the, the further away you get from any chance of a, a thaw and a refreeze, that's what's damaging the yeast. Um, those ice, the ice crystals as they're forming can basically puncture the yeast. Um, so, and the colder it is, the less likelihood for, you know, crystal uh, melting and reformation. Do you guys use like, like yeah. is yours or what's a, what's like the ideal percentage of like glycerin in solution? Um, 50, sorry, 15%. So we do, okay. we have, we'd have basically like a 30% glycerol stock solution and you dilute your culture one-to-one, -one, um, Got to it. end up with 15% glycerol, but that, uh, yeah, that's it minus 80 i don't i don't know if that would that would probably free i mean basically uh i don't know if that would freeze at you know normal freezer temperatures it, I, I run like 12 and a half usually um my, by my rough kitchen yeah. math <laughs> and it freezes yeah. pretty good so yeah. yeah oh that's cool um man do you do you still homebrew, Lance? Um, I haven't brewed myself in, in years. Um, uh, certainly when we were starting out, I mean, that's I was doing all the test batching too. And, you know, we didn't obviously have orders with the frequency we do now. So there was a little more time to kind of brew experimentally too. So I, I did it then. Um, but, man, the last time I probably ran a brew myself was a good four years ago. Um, That's not too long. Uh, I mean, we we have somebody on staff whose job is actually to 
homebrew effectively. We have like a, a one barrel Blakeman electric system uh, that will brew, you know, do a six way split, uh, six different yeast strains, and then do all sorts of blind tastings and evaluations. So that, that's somebody's job is to run that system. That's cool. Do you guys like ever serve any of that? Like, you know, COVID aside, would, would you have like beer for people to taste like on tap there? Um, I mean, not like a public thing, but we do. Yeah. I mean, like when customers, yeah, I mean, we'd have, um, especially, you know, our neighbors, Old Irving, we'd have them down. We're like, we got a cool strain that we just made and we brewed with. You want to come try this? So they'd, they'd come down and try it. Um, so, yeah, we, we used to do more of that kind of stuff, obviously. Uh, now it's just for internal consumption. I got to crack it here. But as far as like seltzers go, what's your favorite flavor? Um, oh, some, uh, so when in our experimentation, we've done one that was meant to be like a, a Paloma, a grapefruit Paloma that mm -hmm. I really, really liked. Um, so I don't remember. I didn't make What's it, so I don't know what all was in it, but I'm so, ignorant. Yeah. What, what Paloma? so a, a, a grapefruit Paloma would have grapefruit juice and uh, mezcal. Um, so it has a nice, you know, smoky component to it. Um, so he used some sort of uh, tea, I think like a smoked tea um, to get that aspect of it. Um, obviously not using, not spiking it with mezcal. Um, um, and then, you know, grapefruit rind, I think. And um, I don't know what else he did with it, but I, I really liked it. I mean, it, you know, it was akin to a, you know, a cocktail. Um, but, uh, just the, the creativity, and this is what I'm getting at with like the, the opportunities for creativity, you know, when I mean, he's using a smoked tea to evoke mezcal. Um, uh, so you, there's really an opportunity for creativity in this realm. That's so cool. I, yeah, I'm nowhere near that creative. I, <laughs> that's so, I don't know. I, I, I try like, you know, beers or seltzers or like meat or whatever from like you know different places around even just the state and just like things blow my mind like i had like a moscow mule sour the other day that was just like in, insane or like a, a rooibos blackberry sour ipa yeah. that was like really good and like it, it's like that, that doesn't sound like it should work at all and i'm not even sure if i should buy this but right yeah <laughs> yeah don't know until you try but yeah i mean there's some very fruity fragrant teas that work well in beers yeah that's actually how i got involved with this club um and i don't know if david's watching but i was in a, a, a an older brew club in our area which I, I i appreciate buzz's crazy name uh <laughs> i used to think so the, the the original club in kalamazoo is a kalamazoo libation organization of brewers and i always thought that was kind of a stretch um, <laughs> and then i hear buzz uh and i'm like wow you guys. <laughs> bam you went really on the nose <laughs> <laughs> but um i was trying to do a beer with erlang tea or earl gray tea and um and uh they they told me about uh, this other club member that had brewed beer with tea uh, and I think it was probably the same tea you're talking about. It, the smoked tea is Lapsang Shushang or whatever. It's it's nasty, it's disgusting, good. horrible shit. Uh, I think that's from Avatar: The Last Airbender. Yeah, but I so I, we're we're at Bell's, um, which is local here, and and uh, 
and I, I see this guy and I go up to him and I'm like, Hey, you brew beer with tea. And he's like, who the fuck are you? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but now we're, now we're good friends. And uh, uh, yeah, I've used tea a couple of times in beers to get some crazy flavors. And, and uh, David's done the same thing. I know he did. Uh, what's the pea berry tea. Uh, he got a, uh, he brewed a, a lager with um, pea berries. If he's watching, he's going to yell at me or when he watches this next week. Um, but that, that, that aspect of the tea is it gives off a purple, pink, blue color, right. depending on which way you're looking at it. And his beer was the same way. We were at New Year's last year at his P house, Blossom. like P Blossom. Yeah, if we shine the light this way, it was like purple, and this way it was pink. And uh, well, and it's pH sensitive too, right? So you get yeah. people that make sours with it, where I think it gets like purple, like yeah. like like hardcore purple. Yep, it's a really cool shit. Yeah. It has like green colors and stuff like that too. I think at some of the higher pHs, butter butterfly pea flowers. Thanks, Brandon. Yeah, I think he called it Smurfette's lady parts. Tasty. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's a, he's a he's a creative <laughs> brewer. Um, so trying to go through. <laughs> so as a, as a home brewer, Lance, and, and maybe with the history, and you know how we we do things on the home brewer scale. Is there any tips or tricks or advice that you would have or how we handle yeast on our side or, or what we can do to be careful with our beers to get the best or the most flavors out of our yeast? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a big advocate of just starters as being one of the, the best ways to ensure consistent and good beer. Um, Even with your hydrated packs? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's what I, if it was me, that's what I, I mean, even if I had a week old pack of my own yeast, I would still do a starter. Um, just because you want it to be, uh, you know, uh, kicking like fast, right? I mean, a, a lot of what brewing is about is uh, overwhelming the possibility of anything else taking over. Um, I mean, you can have really good sanitation and all that, but you know, just something else might get in there in some small quantity. And so just overwhelming the system with what you want to go in there is going to most of the time yield a better product. Um, and, you know, that, and really that's the way we work on the pro side is there are other companies that make large amounts of yeast and then they'll divide it up into packages and it sits in their cooler until it happens to be ordered. But on the pro side, we don't start growing it until it's ordered. So you can't get yeast from us to brew a 15 barrel batch tomorrow. But um, when you get it in a week, it's going to be as fresh as it can possibly be because um, that's the way we think you should be brewing. Um, and the way to achieve that on the homebrew scale is to do a starter. Um, and it just, it still kind of blows my mind that all the preparation that goes into brewing at home, I mean, cleaning all the equipment, getting it in shape, having the whole brew day for a lot of brewers, just making a starter is like a bridge too far. And like, I don't, I don't understand it. You're already putting in all this effort to make the beer. How much more effort is it to do a starter? Yeah. Um, I mean, you can, you know, you can prepare a lot of, you can sterilize wort with a pressure cooker in advance and just kind of have it ready when you need it. Um, so uh, uh, that was going to be next. Yes. You can <laughs> done that for you and canned it. And, and, you know, again, super easy. It's right there. You just cut it in half with water and you're off to the races with your starter. Um, it's just, I mean, it's a, it proofs your yeast. Like you don't, you know, how know necessarily how it got from point A to B to C to D to your house to brew. Um, you know, maybe UPS, uh, lost your, 
your, uh, you know, the package we sent to the homebrew shop and, and we didn't know about it. You know, I mean, it's, uh, and so doing the starter is just a way to also proof your yeast, just make sure it's growing. It's funny. It's the one thing I think that as a home brewer that I've actually moved away from, I started as I started making starters and as I've, I've grown and, and improved my beer um, and I started actually oxygenating instead of aerating, I stopped creating starters. Yeah. I mean, ox- oxygenation is another great one. Yeah. I mean, and we've done, you know, you hear all the time, you, you got to oxygenate or, or at least aerate, right? Or it's, yeah. uh, I'm, I mean, we've done an actual experiment where we, you know, uh, made some work and one we oxygenated and the other we didn't do anything to. Pitched the same culture split between those two and you see a massive uh, difference in attenuation and speed of fermentation and I mean, it makes a huge difference. Yeast need it. It is an essential. I mean, it's it's no less essential than um, the the sugar in there. I mean, they they need oxygen. It's a component of multiple things in the cell. They need it for the ergosterol that's in their cell walls. They need it for the fatty acids that, that's in their uh, membranes. I mean, they can't survive without these things. Um, so yeah, oxygenation is definitely high up on the list. Um, the other thing I would have said before Kvike came along uh, was temperature control. Um, so, you know, it still holds true if you're not using Kvike, but um, good temperature control makes a big difference in, in beer quality. Um, so, you know, holding your ales at, uh, your clean ales at 68 degrees or something, you know, keeping your lagers cold, things like that. Um, but, you know, obviously Kvike, if you're using Kvike, there's a little less uh, importance on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the big ones, starters, uh, temperature control, sanitation, uh, another big one. Sanitation, it's like no matter what book you read or what person you ask or brewer you ask, usually the, the answer is sanitation. Um, I'm actually, I was, I was glad to hear you say starters. I, it's not that I'm against them. I just, I, I, I've gotten lazy and, and I moved away from them. I have yeah. all the stuff and I have the time. You're right. I work from home. It's not like I can't you know, go down <laughs> day and <laughs> do a damn starter. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, yeah. I, we all have to budget our time in different ways. I mean, you know, it's not you're doing something else and that something else is more valuable. And that's why proper starter exists. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, DME is still attainable out there to, to make your own starters, but we, we make a ton of proper starter because apparently people like to shave off, you know, half hour, an hour of the process. I mean, for like four bucks, whatever cost. My time's worth that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, we all spend, I mean, it's a hobby, you know, in large part and uh, dollars we spend on hobby aren't necessarily the smartest. Um, there are other <laughs> ways to do it, but you know, that, that's not the fun part of the process for you. So you buy a convenience product for that part of the process because everybody starts getting into, you know, home brand to, to save money on beer. Right. And then, yeah, yeah. that's the biggest fallacy. What happens, I think happens. People, yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, well, yeah, no, it's a fallacy. It's, it's <laughs> people that think that I'm going to get into homebrew to save money. They're so wrong. I, I, the story I told is like, I went into this, I told my wife, I'm going to go to the store and spend a hundred bucks. And uh, I went to the store and spent six. And, 100? Uh, 600. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, so that first batch of beer was, well, you know, what, 20 bucks a bottle? <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's gotten cheaper and, then, since. 
and then I, I yeah I justify that with her and say well the more I brew the cheaper they'll get you know and 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 then I can get down to you know maybe I can get down to a couple bucks a bottle or or whatever and then and then I got into fruit beers and holy shit you know I mean now I'm buying thirty pounds of fresh raspberries you know, that beer's a buck a bottle <laughs> but good beer that you made that's right. That's right. I've always told people like uh, my philosophy for like brewing beer is 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 basically uh, like doing the least amount of bad things possible. Like don't focus on like getting everything right. Focus on doing as as the least amount of things wrong as you can. <laughs> like like you don't have to air right, but if you can, that's better. You don't have to make a starter, but if you can, that's better and and just kind of work backwards from there like that's that's how you make your better beer and sometimes yeah equipment and stuff uh plays a part in that but the temperature control and stuff like that but yeah i mean you know you can use quite yeast uh to to bypass that you know to a point and yeah and i think uh, part of it too is as your palate gets more sophisticated you know you worry more about certain i mean oxygen ingress at packaging is, you know, I probably was terrible at this when I first started brewing, but I didn't know what I was, you know, if something happened to be oxidized or as brewing styles where oxidation wasn't as big, you know, everybody's making amber ales when I started um, and a slight bit of oxidation in an amber ale is probably not going to be noticed because that's how you can make your IPA taste like an amber ale, <laughs> oxidizing it. Um, so, but you know, if you're brewing a, a hazy IPA like that, you will you will notice if that's heavily oxidized because it looks terrible and it blunts the you know the hop character. So, I mean, it also you know it depends on what you're brewing and what your what your the sophistication of your palate and all these things. I I I don't know if I should even bring this up. I don't know if you know or want even to to answer it. It was either New Glarets or uh, New Belgium Brewing did a study quite a long time ago on adding like a drop of, I don't even know what a drop, olive some oil. amount of olive oil, yeah, to their yeast starters uh, in in lieu of you know oxidation or oxygenation. Uh, yeah, you have any like thoughts on that? Because like that comes up on like maybe a bi-monthly basis on like some brewing forums, and people are like, "Oh yeah, I just dip a toothpick in olive oil and don't oxygenate my wort anymore." Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I have lots of thoughts on this topic. <laughs> uh, um, it ignores some important yeast biology. So um, what olive oil can do is supply a source of fatty acids uh, and yeast need fatty acids and they need oxygen to make fatty acids. So, uh, but they also need oxygen to make ergosterol, which is a component of the um, membrane as well. Um, but the olive oil does not help them make ergosterol. Um, so olive oil can, can supplement fatty acid production, but it cannot supplement ergosterol production. Um, they also need oxygen to make heme. I'm not as uh, sure on the importance of heme in yeast and fermentation. That might be more of a oxidative growth type thing, which is not as relevant to brewing, but ergosterol absolutely is essential to yeast. And it does not, it just doesn't like that. And nobody ever <laughs> talks about this. So, I mean, you can read through all these things and, and they're like, well, I had, you know, of course it's just chock full of anecdotes. Like I used it and it worked great. Like, well, 
it worked fine for that time. Um, and really, it's the uh, uh oh, did we lose? No, <laughs> he probably had it at the bathroom or something. Like that. Oh, okay, he'll, he'll be back in a sec. <laughs> they disappeared. Um, so, uh, I mean, just in your handling of you, basically, you don't need a whole lot of oxygen to give them the amount of oxygen they need to make their agosterol. So, uh, my theory is that just with the, the just the handling of yeast, they're getting dosed with enough oxygen to kind of give them whatever they need to make the limited amount of agosterol they need. But my theory is if you were to only use olive oil and like diligently keep oxygen out, you're going to get a serious drop off in performance by the time you get to like generation three, four or five repitching. Um, Cause they can take their ergosterol and actually divide it between, you know, the mother cell and the daughter cell that's budding off. So that daughter will have some, but they're eventually going to run out as they're reproducing and budding off new cells. Um, so I think the, the olive oil thing would break down if you were to take it out many generations and be really, really good about keeping oxygen out. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I actually have a, a an outline of a write-up uh, where I want to talk about all this because you're right, you do see it. Hopefully it becomes the definitive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you cannot use olive oil as a, it's not a replacement for oxygen. Like again, it, it's not, not that it's a bad thing. It can supplement the need for oxygen in making fatty acids, will not replace the need for ergosterol. Um, so, and the other, the problem is, I, I, and I've looked into this, so you can't, um, ergosterol is expensive. Like you can buy it from a science supply. So it add on some ludicrous amount of uh, cost to a batch if you were to actually directly supplement ergosterol. There's no cheap source of ergosterol. Um, geraniol is in that, in the biochemical pathway to make ergosterol. Mm -hmm. And so that my one thought when I was looking through these pathways, I'm like, Oh, geraniol is cheap. Like they can, uh, you can buy that from, cause it's used, I think in, um, you know, essential, like it's aromatic. Yeah. So it's in soaps and shit, right? Cause yeah. it's, it, yeah, yeah. it smells good and it can be made cheaply. Um, so, but then when I was reading more about that pathway, uh, it's, upstream or sorry downs upstream of the part where oxygen comes into it so basically it, you know you're converting these things that you get to geraniol and then it's some step after geraniol that the oxygen is involved in some cyclization step uh, to make uh, ergosterol so you can't use in other words supplying geraniol would not fix the problem of not having oxygen because you still need oxygen to take one of those later steps um, and then when i looked at what was Everything after that oxygen step is a uh, complex chemical. <laughs> so there's no there's no cheap source of it out there. Um, so to truly negate the need for oxygen, you'd have to su directly supply ergosterol and fatty acids. Fatty acids are easy. They're, you can get them on your grocery store shelf. Uh, but ergosterol, you cannot. So bullshit. It's complete and utter <laughs> bullshit that you can uh, use olive oil as a replacement for oxygen it is not true put your paper out you heard it here first <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean this is why i want to put this together because i'm tired of yeah. seeing it <laughs> it's, it's funny it's it's bounced around the homebrew clubs for so long you yeah know, that, that's replacement and i had to run and get a i had to get some more beer i, I um i grabbed some hot butcher uh you, you made me think of chicago beer so I, I, we have a buddy that works at hot butcher and so i went and grabbed a couple of cans of hot butcher to get into um 
on that same, and I don't know if it's the same line, but Drew asked earlier uh, oh. a question about sulfur and K-metabisulfate. Do you, as a scientist or as a chemist, or, or not a chemist, I'm sorry, a, a biologist, have you heard of, it, of this at all before that... Um, that that when you're dealing with sulfur in your in your beer, your wine, or your meat, or whatever, that you can uh, kind of combat that with K-meta. That I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I'm I'm of the mind that it generally does just dissipate. They're they're very volatile. Sulfur compounds are usually really really volatile. So given time, they will um, volatilize. Um, or you can blow CO2 in it to just kind of encourage that process too. That will help volatilize it. Well, that was my thought. In the past lives, I know that sulfur off gases just naturally, but I, I was going to ask that. Like if I, if I just purge with CO2 and, and, and you know, like blow with CO2 and then purge and blow with CO2, is that going to do the same thing as just allowing it to have off gas? Yeah. Yeah. That should speed up the process some. Um, I think depending on whatever, what the sulfur compound is, even copper, uh, can help. Um, it's the reason stills have are made of copper. Uh, they absorb those sulfur components um, when they're getting volatilized or it reacts with them. Um, if you've ever distilled something uh, without copper in the system, uh, the distillate is disgustingly sulfury. Oh, I never thought about why they would be called cap. Oh, that makes so much sense. That's cool. That's interesting. I mean, I know in yeah. Drew's case, he's not going to, uh, you know, purge the CO2 because it's a wine. Um, but the copper thing's an, an interesting take on it. Yeah, I didn't know that. I actually didn't know either, like Brian was saying, that that was why stills were copper. Yeah. Huh. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that's, really, that's really freaking cool. You had mentioned earlier, too, um, you're talking about like a yeast generations and budding and stuff like that. Like, is there sort of like a max generational growth that you would try to like limit your yeast to and like trying to like step stuff up? Cause like yeast can only bud so many times, right? Before they kind of start to, the cells kind of start to get weak. And well, well, they can, but um, I mean that bud that it's making, the new cell that it makes can then just takes over, bud, okay. you know, that many yeah. times. So yeah, I, Man, this is probably another thing I should already know, but there is, yes, there is a, a maximum times, a number of times a yeast cell can bud. I don't remember if it's like eight, nine, ten, something like that. Um, but again, each cell that it's sloughing off can then go and do that same thing eight, nine, ten times. So, um, yeah, I mean, there are, uh, we've, we've had customers that, you know, brew 25 generations before they get something else and they said it was still working fine. I just felt like I should probably start over. <laughs> um, so, and I think some strains are better at that than others. Some just are better in storage than others and reuse. So the, I mean, that's another important thing to remember is that you need to think of everything. Every strain is different. They're separated by, you know, hundreds of years of evolution. Um, they've got a collection of different mutations. Some last longer in storage than others. Some repitch better than others. They're all different beasts. But awesome. I don't know. I'm 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 about out, Jason. Like you got <laughs> that. Lance, I, I, so I I do I do have one more question. Okay. Okay. Since we're since we're talking yeast, do you have a favorite yeast strain? Period. It can be because you have a favorite beer that you like or whatever. But like, what's your favorite? You know, yeast that you guys make right now? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, if I, if I had a brewery for my clean ale yeast strain, my house ale yeast strain, I would pick our British Ale One, um, just because it's nice and flocculent. It works fast. It's uh, you can you know get a little bit of character out of it depending on how you ferment. Like ferment a little bit warmer, you get a little more ester quality. Out of it. It's quite neutral when you ferment on the cooler end of the spectrum. Uh, crops really really well for reuse. Um, you can make hazy IPAs with it. I think it is actually related to the the, you know, the famous strain that everybody uses for hazy IPAs. So we do have customers that use it for hazy IPAs. Um, it works really, really well in sour wort. So if you're doing sours, it'll ferment out those like a champ too. Uh, so it's just a very versatile yeast. Um, so that, that would be my go-to as a house ale yeast. I've been using it. I'm going to go pick some of that up next week or something. That's cool. Yeah. On that, um, you know, for those of you watching in the in, in our area, in the Keeper's Craft area, uh, South County Homebrew Shop, uh, mm -hmm. reach out to Dane there. They carry Omega, and they'll get you anything you need in the Omega space. Uh, if you're in a, an area that doesn't have a homebrew shop that sells Omega, you can hit them up on OmegaYeast.com, I believe. Is to, that correct? to get homebrew packs from us directly? Yeah. Could you do that? We don't actually retail direct. Okay. Um, but there would be, I mean, there are mail order sources out there and you can yeah, find yeah, there, shops on our website. I know. Okay. Then I'll switch to, for Michigan, uh, Michigan people, AIH, um, yeah. Ventures in Homebrewing can do it. Uh, or just hit up your local homebrew shop and tell them to, to, to <laughs> order some for you. Harangue them on our behalf. <laughs> <laughs> um, that said, Lance, I really appreciate you hanging out with us uh and 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 talking yeast and going through this stuff it's been a great show um gotten a lot of good comments from users on and offline so so thanks for your time i really appreciate it yeah um, well, thank, i'm always glad to talk yeast so thanks for having me on in the in the in the homebrew demo you did last week um well there's dan <laughs> the owner of south county homebrew <laughs> shop um, <laughs> Uh, in, in, the, in the homebrew meeting you did a couple weeks ago, you said you had something you didn't want to announce yet. And I believe that was Sundew and Bonanza, that that was coming out. Is there anything else on the horizon that you can talk about? Um, I mean, I, I think a lot of the, the exciting things are going to be in the hybrid realm. Um, I mean, we've had some that we've already made that we liked a lot, but want to make them a little better. And again, that's the thing. We, and these, we have this, uh, these two particular strains that we put together all three of its uh, children were different. I mean, again, it just depends on which kind of random assortment of uh, genes come together. And all three were really, really good, but I'm looking for something magic out of this one. It's just a, but I can't really, yeah, it's a, it's a neat combination. Um, I think it's, uh, yeah, I think we're going to find some neat stuff in the hybrid realm. Awesome. Well, that's it, folks. Hit it up, uh, hit up Omega your local homebrew shop, South County for us, uh, for the keepers. And uh, yeah, um, I oh, before we go, I want to point out next week, we're going to have um, two uh, ladies from the AHA that are going to be on um, to join us. Uh, so from the American Homebrewers Association, are going to come on the air and, and talk. Two lo local uh, to Michigan. Local uh, to Michigan, yep. Yeah. Um, uh, a lady named Board Amy members. from uh, Stormcloud and another lady named Gail. And they are our Michigan AHA representatives. Um, so they'll be on with us next week talking all things AHA. Uh, I'll get that post created, hopefully tonight, if not tomorrow. Um, and then uh, I think December's got some interesting stuff coming in store, um, but nothing I can announce yet either. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Victory>. <laughs> um, 
So cool. Yeah, man. Uh, try out Omega Yeast. Uh, proper proper starter, proper seltzer is amazing. Um, thanks again. Good. Cool. Thanks, Lance. Thanks a lot. Have a good night, guys.